0: The gospel does not simply offer regeneration, it regenerates. It does not simply offer liberation, it liberates. That's why we spend time preaching the gospel. That's why we spend time opening it and studying it together, because there is nothing more powerful than the love and grace and mercy of God. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Titus chapter 3, so if you have your Bible, would you turn with me please to Titus chapter 3, and we're reading together verses 1 to 8. You'll find it on page 1859 of the church Bible, page 1859, Titus chapter 3. Over the last few Sundays, we've been working our way through the book of Titus, And Paul is writing to his good friend Titus, while Titus is on the Mediterranean island of Crete. And Paul has left Titus there to help with the congregations in and around the island. As we come to chapter 3, he begins with these words, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, And, and I want you to stress these things so that those who are trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy Word. One of my favorite places to go on the East Coast, and I don't get there that often, is Washington, D.C. The first time I visited D.C. was back in 1994. I was there for the 4th of July and had just a spec time, wandering around the Smithsonian, seeing the monuments and memorials, and I loved every minute of it. I've been several times since and consistently want to go back to see Washington, D.C. One of my favorite tours is the Capitol Dome. When you go in to visit the Capitol Dome and they take you to the second level and they don't tell you it's coming tour guide takes you into this room, and suddenly, as you are going into the room, usually there's other tourists toing and froing, and you can't quite see what's ahead. But when you enter into the room and you stop and you look up, and you find yourself in the Capitol Rotunda, it is spectacular. 187 feet up to the top of the dome, and as you stand there, you don't say too much. You begin to look around and observe and appreciate where you actually are. That's the very spot where presidents lie in state. And around the walls are four pictures, large murals, painted and reflect events in U.S. history. Four look at the Revolutionary War. Four, look at the exploration of the United States as the population moved westward, and you realize fairly quickly that there's a spectacular, (coughs) excuse me, spectacular orchestration of painting and architecture and sculpture taking place right there. And The longer you pause and stop and observe and look, the greater your appreciation grows because not only do you see the paintings, not only do you see the architecture, not only do you see the dome and all its splendor from the inside, but you begin to notice statues and bronze busts all over the place. And those statues and busts are of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Dwight Eisenhower, James Garfield, Ulysses S. Grant, Andrew Jackson, Thomas Jefferson, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, Alexander Hamilton, Martin Luther King, and several others. And it is a spectacular tour. The last time I was there, about 18 months ago, I came away thinking to myself, I really wanted to stay longer, but the tour guide moves you on fairly quickly. And I was asking myself as I came out and went round the rest of the capital, what were the priorities for that room? What were the designers trying to say? But you come away with a sense of awe and reverence and appreciation for the history of the U.S. Now, hold that thought in your mind and come with me to Titus chapter 3. the question uppermost in my mind this morning as we come into chapter 3, having touched on chapters 1 and 2 the last few weeks, is this… What was it that still had to be said that the Apostle Paul left to chapter 3? So that takes us to chapter 3, verse 1. The Apostle Paul begins this way, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. If you were writing to Titus, is that what you would have written? Remind the people to be subject and obedient to authorities. Now, I have a question for the ladies and anyone under 35. Here it comes. Gentlemen, you need to remain quiet. It's going to be hard because I'm about to become political. So, gentlemen, ladies, hands up, please, if... On occasion, and I know it's not every day, but if on occasion your husband or father, if you're under 35 and living at home, becomes hot under the collar when watching political commentators on the news and they shout at the television, hands <coughs> up, thank you, hands down. Those of you watching on television, that was a significant number of the ladies in under 35s raised their hand. And I know that men, when they get to a certain age, and we said this last Sunday morning, can become a little grumpy. And when we watch something on the news, we start shouting at the television because we we know, and men know this, that they can hear you on television. We just know that. So we feel we should contribute. And for those of you who are inclined in that direction, this is a verse of Scripture you would rather was not actually in there, but it is there. Remind remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Sometimes you find yourself saying, oh, dear, this is dreadful. They don't know what they're doing in Washington. In fact, someone sent me an email recently that said the Washington Redskins are thinking of changing their name because they're embarrassed the name Washington is in there. I realize it was mainly the men who were laughing, but that's okay. Be subject to rulers and authorities. What does that mean? It means this that Paul is saying be subject to rulers and authorities, live within the rule of law, be a good citizen, vote, pay your taxes. Hold on to those core values which you believe are self-evident. Engage in political discussion and debate, but when you do, be Christ-like, be gracious and gentle, be temperate, be moderate, seek reconciliation. Don't be overly critical and judgmental. Don't be demeaning. Don't be Slanderous. Seek for the good of your community, your state, your nation. All of that is wrapped up in in here. Remind the people to be subject and rulers to rulers and authorities and then to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, and show true humility towards all men. Now, if I've touched on it politically, allow me to touch on it domestically. In terms of where you live, the office environment where you work, wherever you spend most of your working day. If there's people in your neighborhood who upset you and rub you up the wrong way, what is your response? It is not to cut yourself off, but to do what? To pray for them, to befriend them, to give them a break. Not constantly be talking them down, but to act graciously and to love them and get alongside them and allow them to see what Christ-like living is all about. Show genuine, true humility. It's not that we think less of ourselves, but we do, in fact, do what? Think of ourselves less. That's the point he's making. Live your life in such a way as you make the gospel attractive. That's the point he's making. Stay away from being belligerent, discouraging, judgmental, and condemning. And then we come to verse 3. One of the wonderful things about verses 3 to 8 is this. In the original Greek, it is a single sentence. Look at all that Paul has written there. He gives a wonderful, concise comprehensive account of salvation in verses 3 through 8. In fact, it's almost as if the apostle Paul has taken a spectacular summary of the book of Romans and put it into Titus. In fact, earlier this week I was reading this passage at a meeting I was at, and one of the pastors beside me said after I finished reading it, he said, I was thinking to myself, now, where is that in Romans? Is it chapter 5, chapter 6? But in fact, it's Titus. And Titus wonderfully summarizes the gospel in verses 3 through 8. He summarizes it in a spectacular fashion. And if you were with us during January and February and March when we spent three months in the book of Romans, you heard me say again and again that Romans teaches us this, and this section in Titus also teaches us this, that we consistently underestimate the significance, power, and gravitas of our own sin. And on the other hand, we consistently underestimate the significance, power, and gravitas of the grace of God. And that's what verses 3 to 8 focus on this morning. And notice how he begins verse 3. And quite frankly, I wish the Apostle Paul had not written this, because it would make my life so much easier. But he has written it, and notice what he says. Writing to Titus, he says at one time we too were foolish. Paul is thoroughly including himself in this. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And why do I wish he'd never written it? For this reason. Quite frankly, I would be quite happy to teach in verses 1 and 2 and then jump to verse 4 because 1 and 2 are fairly good news. We can handle them. But verse 3 tells us this, that when sin impacts the life of an individual, it entices us and it ensnares us and it brings with us a debilitating factor. And it deceives us and tells us what we're doing is right and fun and good and we'll never regret it. But in fact, the opposite is the case. It so blinds us to the reality of sin, we find ourselves immersed in it before we understand the full significance of what's going on. And that's why Paul, as he looks back on his own life, is a realist and he's a realist to Titus too. And he says, Titus, remember who you were without Christ. We were foolish. We had been deceived by sin. It captured and ensnared us. And we did what? It's right there. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved in all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And why I wish he'd never written it was this, because I don't like to face that in my own life. I like to think I'm a nice person. I like to think that people like me, that I'm popular, that I do good things. But why it's in there is this, because Paul is saying, Titus, if you are ever... To be involved in authentic, credible pastoral ministry in Crete. And if you're ever to teach that and pass it on to those young, vibrant, growing churches, they have to live a real life. And in reality, we must face and deal with sin. Not just sin in society. Not just sin in a regional basis or nationally or internationally. But we have to face it in our own lives as well. That's the point he's making. That's why he's kept it to the end. He's saying, Titus, I need you to hear this and I need you to pass it on. Sin will always encourage us to underestimate the magnitude, significance, and gravitas of what it does. And every person it comes across, it brings debilitation, and it damages, and ends up a disaster every time. Folks, if for any reason you're in doubt about the depravity of humanity, allow me please to take you back to last Thursday morning, I don't have to go back to the first century or the fifteenth century, but just last Thursday morning when 298 passengers boarded a plane for Malaysia at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, and as they started to fly north and west, they came over the Ukraine, and then their plane was blown up. Talk about depravity! The person who actually pulled the trigger mechanism, or pressed the button, however it worked, believed they were doing a good thing, believed it would increase their cause, believed it would move them forward, and 300, 298 to be exact, innocent people who had nothing to do with Ukraine, nothing to do with the tension between the Soviets and the Ukrainians, their lives were over instantly. And families all over the world are grieving and hurting. Their lives are falling apart and turning to ash in front of them. All because of the depravity of sin that ensnares and then enslaves and makes you believe what you're doing is a good thing. That's what's going on. And Paul says, Titus, if you are teaching these elders in Crete, remind them, please, of the significance and the magnitude and the gravitas of human sin. But, mercifully, Titus doesn't stop there, because Paul has more to say in this epistle, and he takes us on to verse 4. And these are one of the great passages in Scripture that says, but. And then, having painted the bad news, he says, but, and then brings the good news, and look at verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. He begins with God our Savior, he moves to the work of the Holy Spirit who drew us to himself, and then generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, we have been justified by grace. Isn't that spectacular? And let me encourage you, please, with all the passion I can, allow me to plead with you If you do not follow a daily Bible reading plan, let me encourage you this week, please, take five or ten minutes at lunchtime or after the day's over and sit down and read Titus 3, 1 to 8 again. Stand there, observe, look, read, pray, take it in, and your appreciation value will go up and up and up and up, and soar eventually heavenwards, why? Because he poured out on us his love. And twice it says this, he saved us. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? He saved us. Not that he made it possible. The death of Christ was not about possibility. It wasn't about potential. He saved us. The death of Christ actually accomplished what? The redeeming work of God. This was not about possibility, potential, probability, or feasibility, but He actually saved us, and He saved us forever. And it's not something we have done, but it's what He has done on the cross for us. And those sins of yesteryear and today and next year are all gone, wiped away, forgiven. That's the wonder of the cross. That's why Titus left it to the final chapter. Timothy, excuse me, Titus, I want you to get this. Titus, teach this to your people. And you'll notice later on in the chapter, he says, focus on this. Stress these things. They are important that He actually saved us. Didn't just make it possible. Not feasibility or probability. He saved us. That's why Jesus said in His last words on the cross, it is finished. He accomplished the redeeming work of His Father. And what does that mean in practical daily living? It means this, that He will not let you go. He will not let you go. He will not surrender you to the passion of the moment or the emotion of the moment. You are His. He will not desert you, walk away from you, or abandon you. You belong to Him Try to stress these things. Allow people to understand the security that is theirs in Christ. When the gospel comes into our lives, please grasp this. It's a theological subtlety, but you need to hear it. The gospel does not simply offer regeneration. It regenerates. It does not simply offer liberation. It liberates. That's why we spend time preaching the gospel. That's why we spend time opening it and studying it together, because there is nothing more powerful than the love and grace and mercy of God. It and it alone is able to transform human depravity to the grace and mercy and love of God. That's why he's leaving it to the end. That's why he wants to finish with it. Now, let me pause for a second. You may be saying, Richard, does this mean that an individual cannot lose their salvation? That's exactly what it means. But hold on a second. I know some folks who have wandered from the things of God and are nowhere today. Well, allow me please to rephrase and be as clear as I possibly can that when Christ reaches out, and the Holy Spirit touches and quickens and enables a heart and soul to respond to the gospel. That is the moment they are born again. Remember John chapter 3. A man cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. He is born again by the Spirit of God, drawn to God, and then as a result, he confesses faith in Christ. And when an individual genuinely, 100%, is touched and transformed by the grace and mercy and love of God, that person can never be lost again. Now that does not mean, and hear me please, that does not mean there won't be times in their life when they'll sin and sin badly. It doesn't mean that they won't wander from the things of God. It doesn't mean that they can't fall seriously and radically. They can. Now understand this. Remember David in the Old Testament? David who wrote, the Lord's my shepherd. David who was king of Israel. David who had the Spirit of God upon him. That same David, one evening, became involved in an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and in order to cover up that affair, he orchestrated the death of her husband. And he wandered from the things of God, and he fell spectacularly and radically. But understand this, towards the end of his life, he had not fallen totally and finally. Seriously, radically, spectacularly, yes. Totally, utterly, and finally, no. What about Peter? On the night of the death of Christ, the night before his crucifixion, not just once, not just twice, but three times betrayed Christ. Had he fallen spectacularly, radically, absolutely? Had he fallen finally and completely and utterly? No, he hadn't, because he was restored and renewed and strengthened and enabled to keep going. And during those moments when you are doubting your faith, and those moments when guilt and shame from the past threaten to overwhelm you come back to Titus chapter 3. Immerse yourself there. Live within it, and remember again, He has saved us, not temporarily, not partially, but fully and finally accomplished. It is finished and you belong to Him, and live with Him, and live for Him, and make the gospel attractive by the way you live. Titus stressed these things. That's why Paul said, Titus, I'm leaving them to the end so that when folks find themselves in desperate circumstance and it feels as if the Lord is a million miles away and they're frustrated and tearful and prayers are not being answered, you can come back here for the hope of the gospel. And what is the hope of the gospel? It's this. Remember that when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by His Holy Spirit, whom He poured out generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture. Thank You that Your promises are living and real for us moment by moment, day by day. Father, when we find ourselves discouraged, when we find ourselves tearful, grieving, weak, and needing reassurance and renewal and strengthening and enabling, help us please to hold on to the promises of God our Savior. And Father, gently, graciously remind us again that when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Father, bless your word to us. Seal it to our hearts this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The New Testament book of Romans is to the Christian life what the Constitution is to the United States. The more familiar you are with this book, the more you realize your faith is built on a solid foundation. Romans will keep your feet firmly on the ground when things go well for you and it will bring purpose to your priorities. To purchase this series, send your check or money order to the Vineyard Bookstore at First Presbyterian Church or call 864-672-1846.